You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Yeah. Good morning everyone. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. It's 7am and today is Tuesday the 29th of November 2022. My name is Fung and in the studio today we've got Carnegie and Jasmine. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, how was everybody's weekend? I feel like it was a big weekend of music. It was a big weekend of music. Um, I went to First and Forever, the first ever First and Forever, which was absolutely phenomenal cannot recommend it enough for the next time that they put that on it was just start to finish the greatest day um like every act was incredible and i feel like and a lot of people just it was such a like wholesome show and a lot of people brought out the other artists onto stage and there were a lot of like impromptu collabs and um Everyone played all my favourite songs, so it was just so good. Do you have a highlight from the weekend? It's really difficult, but I think it was probably Ziggy Ramo. Um, Yeah, and and Paul Kelly together. Oh, amazing. Singing um, from Little Things, Big Things. Absolutely. Very good. Like, so much, so much emotion. It was incredible. I also have to... Shout out um, 3CR Music Feast that was on Sunday. That was an amazing day of music as well. And it was just really great to be together with like a lot of people from the 3CR community. I think my highlight was definitely watching Uncle Kutcher Edwards um, singing and playing music. Um, At one point, (laughs) he was like gesturing to everyone in the back, like, come on, like, this is the last song you have to get up and dance. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so a whole bunch of us got up and danced. And it was actually really fun and just really lovely. So, yeah, shout out to Mercedes, um, Karina, Lara and everyone involved in that event. Whew, big, big weekend of music. Yeah. It's so exciting that everything's slowly opening up and happening again. Absolutely. There's nothing quite like... Really good live music, is there? Mm, good for the soul. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's have a chat about what's coming up on today's show. So we're going to start with um, revisiting an interview we did with Sahara Golitade in September. Um, this is in light of the ongoing protests for Iran happening in Melbourne, which have come a long way since um, this interview um, so we thought it would be good to revisit it and see where it all started. Yeah, and then after that, we'll be speaking with Laura Ricardo, who is the sexual and reproductive health lead at Women's Health in the South East. And uh, Laura joins us on the show to talk about 
the weaponization of personal healthcare data targeting people who have had abortions and also people who are HIV positive. This um, is in light of the Medibank data breach um, that happened recently. We will then revisit an interview we did in September as well with um, Alicia Savas, who is uh, the Associate Director of Child Protection at Victoria Legal Aid. Um, she's been advocating for the implementation of the framework to reduce criminalization of young people in residential care. So um, in light of you know the recent election results, we thought it would be a good reminder um, to revisit this interview. And then we'll be having a chat with Alira Dryden, one of the dancers from the Jara dance group that performed at the First and Forever Festival over the weekend. Yeah, and then to finish us off, uh, we'll be playing, replaying some of the speeches that uh, happened at the recent Slut Walk event in um, Melbourne just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. So here are the news headlines for uh, this week. Um, just an update on the results of the Victorian state election, according to. The ABC, uh, which was updated around eight hours ago, 68.5% of the votes have been counted. Um, the ALP is on 51. Um, the Liberal National Party is on 25. Greens are on four. Um, and there are still eight seats in doubt. Um, now crossing to sport. Um, Melbourne won the first AFLW Premiership over the weekend following a type four point um, sorry, it was a type four point win over the Brisbane Lions in the grand final, um, led by Captain Daisy Pierce, who is just incredible. Um, the Demons uh, prevailed nineteen to fifteen um, in Springfield. So well done to Melbourne. And um, in other news, I just wanted to highlight that the Queensland Land Court has ruled that human rights would be unjustifiably limited by a proposal to dig the state's uh, largest coal mine in the Galilee Basin in central Queensland. And uh, so Youth Verdict, which is a First Nations-led activist group, challenged an application by mining company Waratah Coal, which is owned by billionaire Clive Palmer. Um, the group of activists challenged the mine on the basis that it would impact the human rights of First Nations peoples by contributing to climate change. Um, the coal mine would remove about 40 million tonnes of coal a year for export to Southeast Asia with a lifespan of approximately 30 years. Um, so it's the first time that a group has successfully argued coal from a mine would impact human rights by contributing to climate change. So that's a fantastic win. And, yeah, shout out to... Um, youth verdict for that. And now for some international news. Um, <clears throat> women in Afghanistan have been secretly networking for change. Um, women's activists have been actively involved in providing support to vulnerable Afghan women after the Taliban-led Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan government dissolved critical state support structures like the Ministry of Women's Affairs and after key organisations including the largest network of women's shelters in the country closed their doors. 
The Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, as we discuss on this show quite regularly, has led to um, a 28% decrease in women's employment in the country, according to the United Nations, and rates of domestic violence, forced disappearances, torture of peaceful women protesters, and other forms of gender-based violence have risen sharply since the group's return to power, according to Amnesty International. A Kabul-based coordinator who can't be named has been organizing with a local NGO in Afghanistan and has established a grassroots network across 20 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces that promotes democratic values, women's rights, and solutions to gender-based violence over the past decade to fill the gap. Um, One of the activists has said that Afghan women are together now and we will do our responsibility for the next generation of girls in Afghanistan. Um, In other news, internationally, the film Joyland was banned in Pakistan and the ban has just recently been lifted. Um, Set in the eastern city of Lahore, Joyland tackles the issues of gender and sexuality, which are taboo topics in Pakistan, uh, through the story of a married man who falls in love with a trans dancer, played by a transgender actress called Alina Khan. The film has been praised globally and shown at international film festivals this year, including at MQFF here in Melbourne, and it's won numerous awards, including the Jury Prize, as well as the Queer Palm Award at the Cannes Film Festival, where it had its premiere. Um, In contrast to the censor board's decision, Pakistan's eastern Punjab province reversed its decision to actually release the film, so that province will no longer be showing this particular film, um, but the rest of the country has gone the other way and will be showing it. Um, the transgender community faces deep-rooted societal ostracism in Pakistan and is subject to increasing violence and discrimination. According to Amnesty International, at least 18 trans people were killed in the country between October 21 and September 2022. So those have been the news headlines for today. We'll play a s- song right after this. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, filling up, beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in NAM. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in NAM. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Sicko. This is um, the track Solid Gold. My best friend's always laid off. She just moves with the weather. She guides me with her patience and we breathe in together So 
And that was Solid Gold by Sicko. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Koko for their support of the program. Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Koko ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingkoko.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. 
Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. In light of the ongoing protests for Iran happening in Melbourne and across Australia, we revisit an interview we did with Sahar Golisadeh in September about the death of Masa Amini and the revolution it has spurred in Iran. We are now joined by Sahar Golizadeh, who is joining us this morning to speak to us about the solidarity vigil for the murder of Masa Amini that is happening um, this week. Um, and uh, Sahar is also on the show to tell us more about what's happening currently in Iran. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. So we spoke about this um, at the beginning of the show, and I imagine that a lot of our listeners would um, know already what's happening. But could you just give us a bit of background um, regarding the death of Masa Amini um, uh, 10 days ago? Yeah, thank you. Masa Amini um, was 22. She travelled from Sardis, one of the cities in Kurdistan, to Tehran, the capital, with her brother. And uh, she was wearing a normal scarf uh, when they were stopped um, by the morality police. And the morality police, uh, it's been there for many years, more than 40 years. And before it was named something else, now it is morality police, or called Gashte Shot. So they stopped by them in that uh, your staff is not good enough, is on, not on our way, based on our standards, uh, which every, every one of those morality police have their own standards. So, and then they took her to the car, they take them with the van, with the police vans, um, to the education center. And uh, after they took her to the education center, um, it took a few hours uh, after that, and they called the family, and, and then they said that she's dead. She had a heart, heart attack. So what happens is that in the education center, they put all these young women in that education center, and then they ask them to sign papers and that uh, in, you, you've been educated, you're not going to do this again. And if any of those girl, young girls, they said that, um, or they, they speak up, and they said that there is nothing wrong with my um, cover. I'm happy with, with what I am, what I'm wearing. Or and they raise their voice um, for themselves, stand for themselves, and then they will beat, beat them. Uh, they will find them guilty, send them to the court, and all of this. Mm. So what happened in, with Master Master there? We are not sure. We don't know what happened to her, what did they do, how they beat her, because uh, there are plenty of people, there's plenty of stories outside um, that they've been taken, and these young these girls, they've been taken, even myself or my daughter, we've been taken uh, to these morality centres and they... Um, they humiliate you. They humiliate you the way and, uh, and the way that you, they speak to you to hate yourself, um, to be ashamed of yourself, that 
for, for just being a woman. Mm. Uh, so that's what they they did to math as well. And and you were saying that you know in these centres, uh, women and young girls are punished for for speaking up and for defending themselves. Uh, and we've seen recently with these protests in um, in Iran that. You know, a lot of these protest movements are being led by by women and by queer people, and and a lot of these women are standing up for themselves and really um, raising their voices. What is the importance, in your in your opinion, what's the importance of these protests being led and organised by women? Uh, I think that the leader of the the future are, are women, and not only women; they are young women. I am. Here, sitting outside Iran from all of those fights, when I see the videos coming out, they're all young, brave women. The people, the young generation that we were thinking that all they do, they're dancing on TikTok. But now they, you see that this protest started from there. They're like, no, this is my right. I see outside. I see how people are treating um, people. I see everyone, every other woman in other countries, they have freedom. Why shouldn't I have? Even including the Islamic countries, other countries within the region, they have freedom. They, they can speak up. They have uh, the freedom of choice, what to wear, what not to wear. Why they shouldn't? So I think that um, women... They're, they're, they've been hostages. They've been um, under too much pressure. They, they didn't have any force in the last 44 years of um, Islamic um, regime. They, they, had, you, they are not allowed to talk. They are, even in, within the Islamic regime, you are not, they tell you that you are not allowed to, to laugh. Because if you laugh or if you don't cover your hair the way that I want to, then uh, I might um, lose my control. And then I want to, to do whatever I want to because, because you're attractive. Mm-hmm. Because women are delicate. Women are beautiful. And, and those men that who rule the, the country, they cannot control themselves. That's why they think that, okay, so I have to suppress women. And now these women are standing for themselves. Yeah, and, and there's the photos and, and footage coming out of Iran, a quite incredible seeing so many, like you said, so many young women leading these protests and, and um, standing up for the, their rights and the rights of others. Um, there have also been many events um, occurring outside of Iran um, all over the world, including here in, in Melbourne, in solidarity with the people of Iran. Um, can you talk about a bit about the importance of, of solidarity from, from other communities to support the people of Iran at this crucial time? Yes. When uh, George Floyd um, was beaten by American police, Iranians stand, stand up for them. They they were all marching on the streets. When uh, any uh, anything else happened around the world with the Ukraine war, war, with the Afghanistan war, Iranians and Iranian women stood up and they were all marching on the streets for uh, everyone else outside. And now the importance of other communities, especially these communities that uh, we're all immigrants from Iran here in Australia, America, or Canada, 
this is very important to have other communities oh, um, beside us um, because we are supporting Iranian women who are fighting for their own liberties. And uh, it might not be very uh, clear or people, you can't even imagine being fighting for your fundamental right for what to wear, how to speak, how to have freedom, just freedom of wearing what you want to wear, uh, just a bit, bit of scarf. And then if, if you're not covering your hair properly, then you've been bitten by this and to this. And so just showing solidarity for all of those who have battled against the establishment. We can be their voice. Mm-hmm. That's that is, I think, that that's what we can do because the government uh, cut down the Internet. There is no Internet inside the country, despite that people are sending their videos, their footages outside. However, so if we have, um, because we have the freedom, we have the Internet, we have um, media, we, we can broadcast, we can publish and show, show to the world our solidarity. And that shows that they are not uh, alone. So that was an interview we did with Sahar Golisade back in September for um, ongoing updates on Iran protests here in Melbourne. You can follow uh, Melbourne for Iran on Instagram. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Electric Fields. They are an electronic music duo um, with First Nations person Zachariah also singing in Pitanjara. This is their cover of From Little Things, Big Things Grow. Gather round people, let me tell you a story An eight-year-old story of power and pride British Lord Vesti and Vincent Lingari We're opposite men on opposite sides Vesti was fat with money and muscle Beef was his business Broad was his door, Vincent was lean and spoke very little. He had no bank balance, her debt was his floor. From little things, big things grow. Vincent to Wankang, we are Nayulu. 
Eight long years of waiting to one day a tall stranger appeared in the land. And he came with lawyers and he came with great ceremony and threw Vincent's fingers. What a handful of sand. That was the story of Vincent Limp Gary. But this is the story of something much more. How power and privilege cannot move a people who know where they stand and stand in the law. That was a cover of From Little Things, Big Things Grow by Electric Fields. And really nice hearing some of Vincent Lignari's um, infamous speech embedded into the song as well. 2022 saw multiple data breaches that impacted millions of people around the country. 9.8 million people had their personal information stolen during the Optus data breach and another 9.7 million people were impacted by the Medipank cyber breach. It was reported that sensitive health data, including information about abortions and HIV, were posted on the darknet, to which the Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, told the Parliament uh, during question time that the full weight of the AFP and Australian Signals Directorate were coming for those who had leaked the information. Laura Riccardi is the Sexual and Reproductive Health Lead at Women's Health in the South East and joins us on the show today to discuss the weaponisation of personal healthcare data targeting those who have had abortions. Welcome to 3CR, Laura. Good morning, Fung. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by talking a bit about uh, women's health in the southeast. Can you tell us more about the services and support um, that the organisation provides? Absolutely. So Women's Health in the Southeast, or WISE, is the regional women's health promotion advocacy and support service that covers the southern metropolitan region of Melbourne, um, and it forms part of a network of coordinated women's health services across Victoria. And our focus as a not-for-profit organisation is on empowering women, and we do this by... um, working to promote gender equality, improve sexual and reproductive health and prevent violence against women um, in partnership with other health providers, uh, government, um, community and social services and education providers. So can you give us a brief summary of the data breach that occurred at Medibank not that long ago? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for those who don't know, Medibank is one of the largest providers of private health insurance in Australia. And early this month, a ransomware group claiming to have the data of 9.7 million Medibank customers began releasing that data on the dark web. Um, The first wave of data that was released included clients or customers' personal information, including their names, their birth dates, addresses, email addresses, phone numbers, uh, Medicare numbers, and um, passport numbers for international student clients. And the hackers also released health claims information, including um, information pertaining to abortions, HIV and hepatitis status, um, mental health claims, and claims related to alcohol and other drug dependence. And they released this deeply personal and private information under so-called good and naughty lists, like an an evil Santa, um, knowingly weaponising stigma and discrimination and shame that people continue to experience related to um, commonplace and legal medical procedures um, in Victoria and Australia. Yeah, that's it's such a it covers such a wide range of very sensitive information. Um, can you tell us about the impact on clients who have had their data stolen? Yeah, well, um, firstly, I think that Medibank clients will likely have very real concerns regarding how the hackers will use their personal data, including um, the risk of blackmail, identity theft, fraud, um, targeted scams or phishing scams. Um, so obviously people's personal um, and financial security and safety are undermined by the breach. Um, But I think equally there's the fact that the release of this data or the threat of releasing this data is causing a great deal of stress and anguish for many people. Um, As I said, um, the hackers are very deliberately weaponising stigma and discrimination that people who access medical treatments that may still be considered uh, taboo or controversial by some may feel in relation to their sexual and reproductive health or their mental health. Um, They may have concerns about being rejected from their religious or cultural communities based on their medical history. Um, And, of course, women and gender-diverse people who've experienced violence um, or who are on precarious visas are at particular risk due to the way that this information might be used against them. Um, Of course, we know that there's nothing shameful or wrong about accessing abortion or treatment for HIV or hepatitis, Um, but nonetheless, there is still a great deal of stigma related to um, these issues in society, and I think the hackers are are very deliberately weaponising that. Yeah, like you were saying, there's absolutely no shame um, around uh, seeking, you know, um, abortions and um, and other services like that, but um, there is still, you know, a lot of stigma in society. What do you think the broader implications are of having this data revealed about um, such sensitive um, sensitive procedures or or conditions? Um, how will that affect, I guess, the dialogue and the um, the how people view view these things in society? Totally. Um, Such an important question because I think that the broader implications of having this data released or revealed is that people may be discouraged from seeking vital health care. 
um, I think the data breach really undermines confidence in the healthcare system at large, not only pertaining to private insurers, <clears throat> and it might discourage people um, from seeking healthcare related to sexual and reproductive health and from making claims. So um, abortion, for example, is legal in Victoria. It's a safe and commonplace medical procedure. Um, indeed, an estimated one in four women will access an abortion in their lifetime. Um, however, we know that that stigma, whether anticipated or experienced, can be a significant barrier to people identifying and accessing appropriate services. And this really limits the ability of women and gender diverse people to exercise their reproductive rights and autonomy. And I think similarly with HIV status, um, it's another critical example of how stigma can be a barrier to accessing vital health care. We know that of the almost 30,000 people living with HIV in Australia, over 90% are aware of their status and are receiving treatment, which means that they're able to live healthy and full lives, but without access to life-saving antiretroviral treatment and healthcare, people living with HIV are at risk of very poor health outcomes. So we see that uh, the lack of confidentiality and fear of those data breaches um, are a real threat um, to people's access to indispensable healthcare services. Yeah, and there are already so many gaps in our healthcare system and there are lots of vulnerable communities who are already finding it difficult enough to seek support and have access to health care services. So um, I imagine that a, a, a massive data breach like that just makes it even more challenging for, for certain people. Absolutely. So what needs to be done to ensure that people's medical data is kept safe? Um, well, I should probably qualify my comment here with the fact that I'm not a cybersecurity expert or an ethicist, um, but my general um, opinion on this matter is that organisations that hold that data have a responsibility to protect it. All healthcare services are required to keep patient information um, confidential, but this recent hack highlights the need for vigilance with customer data. Um, because the, the repercussions of, of this data hack um, impacts trust in the entire healthcare system, not just private insurers. And as you say, vulnerable patients will be impacted um, disproportionately. So I, I really hope that Medibank Private is doing all it can to support its customers during this time, but particularly those who um, are exposed to the breach. And I think this means um, supporting customers to protect and secure their personal information, um, including their bank accounts, um, and to support them to access counselling and crisis support because the full implications of this breach can be very far-reaching. Yeah, definitely. And finally, we've been having many discussions here on the show about... Um, reproductive healthcare rights, um, especially since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. Um, what do you think needs to be done to ensure that sexual and reproductive healthcare is prioritised and protected in light of this recent data breach? Well, I think that it's important that community members are aware that um, their right to abortion access um, is... Uh, Continuing, It's legal and safe here in Victoria and has been decriminalised um, 
in most states across Australia. Um, I think that the onus really is on um, governments and organisations to ensure that sexual and reproductive health is um, is funded and that its impact on physical and mental health and well-being, um, as well as people's relationships and sense of self, is recognised and prioritised and integrated into health promotion and planning broadly. Thank you so much for that, um, Laura, and thank you again for joining us on today's show to talk about the impact of this data breach. Like you said, um, I think the how people um, are affected by this, we won't really know um, long term, so it is important that people are provided with the care um, and, and counselling if, if they choose to um, pursue that um, so that they get the support that they need in this time. But thanks again for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thank you so much, Fung. That was Laura Riccardi, Sexual and Reproductive Health Lead at Women's Health in the South East, or WISE, speaking to us about the Medibank data breach and the sinister targeting of health data related to um, reproductive health care. We'll be back with a song right after this. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am. We're going to play you a track now by Lady Lash, who is a Kolkata Greek hip-hop and jazz artist. She gave an electric performance at 3CR Music Feast on Sunday, performing songs from her latest album, Spiritual Misfit, that was released in November 2021. This is her track, Black Woman in, in the Flames, and just a warning here that there is some explicit language. It's written in the stars in the skies Drink time my song line still alive You will not kill our souls down no 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 you try but our spirit is too strong my ancestors roots grow from my tongue deep in the belly running on the front line energy for not listen set the truth on fire our resilience of power stem from the roots of love 
Hilly medicine like the bush Blew from the sun The power of our ancestors' plan You can't wipe us out Cause here I still stand We got the power We got the soul We got the love Oh We got the power We got the love Lady Lash with um, her track Black Woman in the Flames. So next we're going to visit another interview we did in September this year with Alicia Savas, who is the Associate Director of Child Protection at Victoria Legal Aid. She's been advocating for the implementation of the framework to reduce criminalization of young people in residential care as soon as possible. This framework was signed in 2020 and is an incredibly important step to reduce the risk of criminalization of young people. So we thought it would be timely to visit it, um, given the recent election results. The Framework to Reduce Criminalization of Young People in Residential Care, signed in 2020, is an important step to reduce the risk of criminalization of young people. Alicia Savas, Associate Director of Child Protection at Victoria Legal Aid, is advocating for the implementation of this framework as soon as possible. Um, she's on the show this morning to talk us through the framework and um, how it can help. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a bit of uh, background on how this framework came about and the advocacy that went into creating it? Sure. So the framework uh, was created in 2020 after 
um, many years of advocacy from people in um, the child protection and youth justice sector. Um, so, for example, Victoria Legal Aid, where I, um, we were seeing in our legal practice young people um, in the child protection system, um, particularly those in residential care, ending up in the criminal justice system. Um, so we undertook some research, as did other people, um, including Melbourne University academics and uh, the Sentencing Advisory Council, and found that uh, that it was a real thing that young people um, in the child protection system, particularly those in out-of-home care, are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Uh, so that's something we wanted to see change. We want to um, make sure that uh, young people who have um, the unfortunate experience of ending up in the child protection system um, don't end up criminalised and uh, have every opportunity to um, be fully functioning, thriving members of the community. So you recently wrote an article for Law Institute Victoria explaining the framework and how it can help protect vulnerable children, um, where you refer to the pipeline effect that you just touched on, where children who are involved with child protection are far more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Um, can you just tell our listeners a bit more about this pipeline? Sure. So our data at Legal Aid um, showed us that 51% uh, of young people in our research, 51% of young people in um, uh, residential care um, were ending up with criminal charges within 12 months of uh, that placement. Uh, so really it was showing to us that um, there is a, a really direct correlation between young people being put in out-of-home care, particularly residential care, and I can explain what that is a little bit more, um, uh, ending up with criminal charges. So that's the pipeline effect. Um, really, it was finding that uh, that people um, with contact with the child protection system, particularly out-of-home care, were more likely to have criminal charges. Um, we see that most significantly um, for um, so residential care placements, um, that also the more serious the sentencing that a young person has, the more likely they are to have had um, time in out-of-home care as well. Yeah, in your article, there's some powerful quotes from young children who have experienced residential care. Um, one 11-year-old girl said that it was the worst time of her life. Um, can you, you know, elaborate a bit more on what residential care is and what um, how, how they do end up there and what the experience has been like? Yeah, so uh, for a young person to end up in out-of-home care, it means that they've generally um, had a um, the child protection um the Child Protection has um, made an application to the Children's Court to say the child's in need of protection. The court's made a finding that they are um, generally in need of protection and that they um, need to be removed from parental care. So for those children, they're very likely to have experienced trauma or abuse or um, sort of adverse childhood experiences. So residential care is one of um, several placement options when a a child can no longer live um, with their family. So other placement options are foster care or a kinship placement where they live with family or friends. Residential care is, um, is usually considered the last resort. It is like uh, a group home where uh, young people um, with, um, in out-of-home care uh, live in um, a group home setting with professional carers looking after them. So they may be there for um, short-term placements or they may be there for, uh, for, for long-term. 
but it's really common for those young people to have had multiple placements and often multiple residential care placements as well. So it's really a last resort. Um, you know, the system really tries to house young people, um, if they can't stay with a family, placed in foster care or kinship sort of family-like arrangements. But the sad reality is there is an increasing number of young people in residential care as well. Yeah, and the, um, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of them do kind of move around to different ones, which would really add to, I think, a child's sense of, you know, not feeling safe or not feeling like they're being helped um, or held by society in any way. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Commission for Children and Young People a few years ago uh, undertook um, some research and they found that um, there is... Um, real issues around um, the inappropriate mix of young people in placement. So often young people who have, um, you know, they've got their own um, trauma backgrounds um, being um, placed together in units that are not necessarily the best mix for them. So that can lead to um, uh, safety issues for young people themselves, so them feeling unsafe, but it can also lead to, um, to behaviour, which may ultimately end up, uh, end, um, find them, uh, end up in the criminal justice system as well. Yeah, you just touched on trauma, which is um, a huge part of all of this. Um, what's the importance of trauma-informed approaches when addressing these situations for children in particular? Yeah, so um, that's uh, an issue that was picked up in the Sentencing Advisory Council and other reports is that, um, that actually the response to young people with um, with you know, challenging behaviours, so uh, no no pretense that you know that there's um, that everything's good. There is really challenging behaviour for these young people in residential care at times. Um, but um, so the uh, Commissioner for Children and Young People found that, that there was an over reliance on calling police as a way of managing that behaviour. Um, so that's really um, not the ideal approach for dealing with young people. Um, uh, calling police for a young person who may have significant distrust of police and authorities um, can actually lead, lead to escalation of behaviour. So um, coming to the framework to reduce criminalisation, that is one of the key uh, principles in that, is to have a trauma-informed approach to dealing with young people. I imagine with the over-policing, um, it's even worse for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, who are kind of disproportionately represented in the system anyway. Um, and I imagine trauma-informed approaches would be all the more important for them, um, you know, and advocating for culturally appropriate support. Is this something the framework supports as well? Yeah, absolutely. So for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, they are um, 17 times more likely to have a protection order and they're 22 times more likely to end up in out-of-home care. So it's a really, really disturbing statistic. Um, when they do end up in care, they often don't um, have the right cultural support to assist them. So again, um, other research was done that found that there's a, a really um, a significant lack of cultural support plans for Aboriginal young people in care, which is a requirement um, by law. So for them, uh, the experience um, is that you know residential care um, may not be a, a positive experience. And, of course, the distrust of police um, is really, really pronounced for Aboriginal young people as well. So um, having a trauma-informed approach and um, other 
Um, there's other features of the framework as well um, really aim to address that. Um, so some of the things um, that are uh, covered in the framework are about um, uh, sort of supporting the cultural connections for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in residential care, so building their connection to culture and improving their um, feelings of cultural safety. So that's a really key principle to it. Um, another feature of the framework is um, the uh, need to in, um, increase the participation of young people themselves in decision making about their lives and what's happening to them in placement as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really important part of the framework to have to give to, to empower young people because I feel a lot of this process is incredibly disempowering, um, which is which is probably a huge factor in how they do end up in the justice system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the framework was launched in 2020, but COVID has delayed the actual implementation. Um, can you tell us a bit about how and when it will be implemented? Yeah, so that's right. So while well, the framework is um, an excellent agreement um, between the you know the key agencies who are working with young people in um, in the child protection and youth justice systems. Um, so that's child protection, police, and Department of Justice. Um, it hasn't been implemented yet, so um, we're calling on um, uh, on the signatories to the agreement to implement the framework as soon as possible. So early work has commenced, but it's still not implemented yet, so we're keen to see that happen as soon as possible. So when it's implemented, um, that will provide guidance to people who are working with young people, which is a really important thing. So, um, for example, uh, residential care workers, giving them the tools and the training to support them to, uh, to make decisions um, about how to deal with young people with their challenging behaviour in residential care. Uh, it will also provide guidance to police about uh, alternatives to criminal charges if they do need to be called out, but really um, making that a last resort as well. So we are, um, we are keen to see the framework implemented as soon as possible. Unfortunately, uh, we're still seeing the same examples in our legal practice of young people being charged for offences that if they were living in a family situation, a police would not be called. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, this framework is going to make a big difference um, in the way that people even just view this situation overall, um, let alone, you know, put it put into practice um, the various kind of things that are in the framework. Um, was there anything you wanted to add from your experience as a lawyer or how this will impact um, lawyers moving forward? Yeah, so for lawyers working with young people, it's, um, uh, we can really take up the framework. Um, even now before it's implemented, we can take up those principles about supporting young people's participation in decision-making and uh, talking to um, police about uh, charges and alternative charging them if they need. But really, I think the, the key part is for um, all of us and everyone who's working with young people to advocate for the framework to be implemented so that we've got the tools for people who you know doing really challenging work um, to be able to support young people to give them the care they need rather than a criminal justice response. Absolutely. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Alicia, but thank you so much for joining us and talking us through this um, very important subject. Great. Thank you very much. So that was an interview that we did with Alicia Savas in September 
about uh, a framework to reduce the criminalisation of young people. On Sunday, Mushroom Group, the Victorian Government and Bad Apples Music held the first and forever a new day-long festival celebrating black excellence and the irrepressible force that is contemporary First Nations culture and music. Artists from multiple nations united at the gathering place at Hanging Rock for a landmark music event. Handpicked by the Bad Apples music founder, rapper and author Briggs, the collected artists represent the diversity of forms and genres through which First Nations culture continues to evolve. We're going to chat with Jaja Warung and Yorta Yorta woman Alira Dryden, one of the dancers from the Jara Dance Group, about her performance and the festival. Welcome, Alira. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a bit about the performance with the group and what it meant to you? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, as Jasmine said, I'm a proud Jaja Warung, Yorta Yorta woman, and um, I'm a part of the Jara, Jara Dance Group. And... Um, <clears throat> We were lucky enough to be able to dance at the concert and um, honestly it was the most amazing experience for myself and for my sisters that were dancing with me and um, I think it meant so much to us and the dance just went so well and everyone was um, enjoying the dance with us and just really, really just like taking um, all of our dance moves in because obviously our dance moves have been passed down by generation to generation. And so for me, it was an absolute privilege and honour to be able to dance my ancestors' dances. And, yeah, it was just a beautiful experience. Yeah, and um, I saw that you were wearing emu feathers. Can you tell us a bit about what that means and um, the importance of wearing that through your performance? Yeah, so... um, the Jarjarong people's totem is the emu, um, and so um, that skirt's the Brummel, um skirt. So um, one of my sister girls who I danced with, um, she actually made that, and um, she allowed me to wear that. So it's a it's a pretty significant thing that um, us Jarjarong women wear those emu skirts because um, it's our totem, and we're representing our totem, and um, we also get painted up. Um, similar to um, emu, emu legs, and um, yeah, just a it's just a tradition that um, us Jarjarong women do. Yeah, really beautiful. And I know you've danced multiple times um, for various different events. How was this event different? Um, yeah, well, I think this event was probably my biggest event. Um, about three years ago, we did Tandurum, um at Federation Square, and that was a, an amazing experience. And so this. Um, festival was my first time back at it and I think this festival was just um yeah the the atmosphere of it was just so amazing and then as soon as I walked out on stage you know you just see all these people like I'm pretty sure there was over 7,000 people there and um the, the the faces that were just you know they were all on us and so we um in that moment I felt you know just so just so overwhelmed with um, love and just spirit from the crowd, and it was that's what really gave me the strength to be able to dance and um, yeah, just thinking of my ancestors really. Yeah, really incredible. And um, why do you think festivals like First and Forever are really important? I think it's really important because um, you know we're show we're we're showing the black excellence from our community and our and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, like. We are very, very talented people and I think it's so important to have these massive festivals so we can showcase that. And then even for the, 
you know, young fellas and young women in the crowd that, you know, haven't um, been able to share their talent. And, you know, when they see Aboriginal people up on stage, they go, yep, I can do that. I want to be like that. And, you know, so it really pushes our young mob to be able to get up there and get that confidence and showcase what they have in their talent and their spirit. And I think um, that's why it's really important we have these sort of concerts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a, as a young girl, you've performed with your father as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So it must be pretty surreal, you know, now as an adult performing on your own. Oh, yeah, definitely. I uh, just, um, I think that the whole time I was dancing, I was thinking, um, I was thinking of my ancestors, but I was also thinking of my beautiful nan and my dad. Mm. Um, you know, because my nan, she um, she grew up um, on Kamragunja Mission and then she got moved to the flat in Marupana. And um, <clears throat> I think, um, yeah, she she wasn't able to practice culture as much as I am. And so that's why I feel it's my job and my duty to be able to dance and showcase my culture and share it with people in a respectful way and also guided by my elders as well. So... Yeah, it was just a, honestly like one of the most amazing experiences and um, dances that I will forever and the concert will, I will forever always hold close to my heart as well. Mm. Who was your favourite act of the day uh, at the festival? Uh, favourite act? Uh, I'm going to have to say maybe Eva Jessica Mowboy. She was phenomenal because I've met her before and um, ever since watching um, the Sapphires, I think she did an amazing job in the Sapphires and I've just always loved Jessica Malvoy. As soon as she got up, I was going off. It was just, it was amazing. It was awesome. So I think either Jessica Malvoy, Barker, I was obviously got the privilege to um, meet Barker and she was awesome and we had a deadly chat. Um, so I think, yeah, either Jessica Malvoy, Barker, um, I think Bake Boy, he was amazing too. Kobe D, honestly, like all of them, like I can't, can't pick just one act because they were just so amazing and just even being backstage with them and just like having that yarn and um you know just kind of like congratulating each other on like the acts that we did yeah it was it was really phenomenal um earlier i was actually at first and forever and it was easily um one of the best shows i've been to and i think a big reason was because of the vibe and because of the energy that the artists actually brought um yeah and it's interesting to hear you say you know that backstage there was a lot of camaraderie because in the audience we were all thinking that we were like you know they're probably backstage just loving it was that the vibe Mm. yeah no of course it was um we were all just backstage and we um, kind of all had our own tents and um, everything and, like, we'd be walking around and having a feed and having a, um, having something to drink and uh, basically, we yeah, we were all just, like, congratulating each other whenever we walked past. Um, obviously, you know, the artists um, that after me that got to see our act congratulating um, all of the dancers, the tunnel run dancers and the... Jury jury dances, like yeah, it was it was it was amazing, and we're all just kind of like supporting each other and kind of, you know, leaning on each other and each other's vibes. So, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I think that energy really came through. Yeah, of course, of course, and I think yeah, we really just like really wanted to showcase like and um, give off our energy and our spirit to everyone, and we wanted everyone to join in in the crowd, and we wanted, you know, it was just like, and we got that, we got that energy, I could feel everyone's energy, it was, yeah, it was just amazing. 
It does really seem that First Nations culture, particularly in the context of music and performance, is becoming more mainstream, particularly through festivals like this. Are you feeling that shift as well, Alira? Oh, of course, of course. You know, when I was a kid, never never got to see any any of these stuff. Like my dad, he was a he was a performer himself. Um, he's a Yadaki player, and he was also an actor as well. Still is an actor, and so I think. Um, you know, for him, it was much harder. Like, he had to work much harder to get his platform and so many other um, Aboriginal artists that are older than us, they had to work so much harder than um, what what us young mob have to because it's so mainstream now. It's so it's so highlighted in, um, you know, just society and, you know, it's celebrated in society. But I think, yeah, we've got, we've got to do a little bit more. But, yeah, I definitely think it's, um, yeah, it's just phenomenal to see how people thrive and I love it brings my fills my um heart full of joy when I see our young mob um performing and yeah just it's just really amazing Mm. that's great well um before we let you go Alira what other artists would you love to see in the future at festivals like this uh what other artists would I like to see it's pretty Um, hard with such a stellar lineup I think I know, I know. I think um, one of the things I would like to see maybe is a lot of, especially when we do festivals in Victoria, I would really like to see more Victorian mob, um, traditional owner mob um, at these festivals because, um, you know, like we do have um, a lot of talented Victorian mob and I'd really, really love to um, see our Victorian mob up there and, um, you know, and so I was like, it was amazing that um, us, Victoria Mob got to dance, but um, I would really like to see our Victoria Mob up there, you know, sharing their talent and sharing what they have, um, what they have, what they've got really. So, um, but yeah, in terms of artists, I don't know. I just, I think, yeah, I think we had such a phenomenal lineup. Um, but yeah, as I said, maybe some more traditional owners. Yes. That it sounds amazing. Well, Alira, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us about your culture and the festival. Um, it was really lovely to chat this of morning. Of course. Of course, I'd love to. Um, I'm always here to have a yarn and, um, yeah, share what I've got to say. Thank you. Thanks, sis. That was Alira Dryden chatting to us about her performance at First and Forever, which was held on Sunday, the 27th of November. To find out more about the artists that performed, you can visit firstandforever.com.au. And next up, we have a song by Barker. This is Black Matriarchy. Barker performed at First and Forever. And just a language warning, um, if you'd rather tune out, um, you can join us at about 8.15. My black mind and from a dream time I go back They commit a genocide through my tracks They raped our mothers less than my black They bought the violence when they attacked I ain't here to start trouble, I'm just here to state facts You can't paint me how you wanna paint cracks And I'm tied to my mob, got my mob on my back <sighs> Warrior ties are covered in blood Whitewashing our history to cover it up Proof is all in the pudding Cause this nation couldn't give a fuck about us We survive unseated, undivided Our people stay fighting cause the flame is ignited We stay righteous, we cannot be silent the silence is violence, the reason we're divided And 
I choose not to digest the truth Instead I just go ahead and delude our youth Only like the system cause it just suits you Give a fuck about the law, yeah, I'd rather grassroots Black to the bone, black to the busy Mob on my back, yeah, they all rock with me Barker in my blood, that river flow through me I'm matriarchy, all bloodline, 120 Black this for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders This is for black matriarchs This is for all of our women This is for all of our children Couldn't care less about the monarch I'ma set fire to the kingdom I'm coming for them More hell to black matriarchs I'm the pain and the proof The history that lays out the truth And they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes Tell us to go bush when they all introduce Fuck it, we've been here for too long Matriarchy blood, yeah, been built strong Song lines deep, yeah, got me singing songs Cause I can't forget where I came from Parkinji country, Mungo man Pass it to my kids, tell them this your land I came from the dirt, go back in red sand There's a river, uncle, I'm proud of who I am Creator, creator, me tough and I'm calling out all your bluffs Saying the past is all in the past Well that dark past still lives in my mouth I stay radical, I know the truth Couldn't kill my ancestors, I'm the proof I know I still got some screws loose But my third eye's open and I'm looking right through Looking at you, Nunku right here Gonna do what it do, so my little black seeds Ain't gonna prove shit to you Not just sent me, gone bud, what do? 3% me, hold it down for the few This for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders this is for black matriarchs, this is for all of our women, this is for all of our children, couldn't care less about the monarch, I'ma set fire to the kingdom, I'm coming for them, more hell to black matriarchs. You know, I have a culture, I am a cultured person, don't try and suppress me, and don't call me a problem, I have never left my country, I am not the problem. was Black Matriarchy by Barker. On Saturday the 19th of November, Slatwalk Melbourne had their first in-person march since 2019. We're going to play a speech from the rally. Uh, we'll hear from Nazanin, who speaks about women's language, uh, who speaks about women's experience in Iran under the morality police. Um, just a quick language warning on this one. Um, the speeches also do cover sexual assault, so if this is a trigger for you, please tune back in in about eight minutes. Thank you. Woman, life, freedom. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad that you guys cheered because most of my speech is going to be pretty sad, as you can see by the outfit I'm wearing. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. On this Aboriginal land, I want to tell you the story of another land. A land that's bleeding, that's going through a revolution, a revolution led by women and its minorities, the minorities that have come together to become the majority. Thank you. I'm going to tell you the story of Iran and the revolution that is going through right now. To understand what's happening there, I have to give you a little bit of history lessons and a little bit of politics lessons. It's very complicated, so please bear with me. Islamic Republic of Iran 
is a dictatorship that has taken Iranians hostage for 43 years. It has ruled their bodies and their choices for 43 years. It has killed our people, oppressed us, divided us for 43 years. Every dictatorship stands on several pillars of control and power. For Islamic Republic, the first one starts in oppressing women, in establishing a gender apartheid, and that starts from imposing a dress code on us. We call it compulsory hijab, forcing us what to wear, how to behave in the public. And that extends into limiting our participation in public, holding office, taking custody of our children, and it's one of its most heinous ways it manifests in using rape as a torture on political prisoners. Shame! To bring down a dictatorship, which is what the people of my country are doing right now, you need to attack all of these pillars. And you, as Australians, here right now, can help us to bring down some of those. The other two pillars of this dictatorship are its economy, selling oil and natural resources, and conducting business with other countries, which they have continued doing despite very harsh sanctions that they had. They know ways how to go around it. They have mechanisms, they have people, and they have operator, operatives in other countries who do the business for them and still bring them money that only enriches the pockets of the oligarchs and the regime and doesn't go to the people. And the third pillar is being legitimized as a government by the, national, by the international community. That goes from conducting diplomacy, going to seminars, having diplomatic relationships, competing in international sports. And these are the pillars that we want to bring it down, that we want to attack it, to bring down a dictatorship. Thank you, thank you. So I'm going to tell you about compulsory hijab. One of the forms of oppression that girls in Iran start experiencing when they turn seven, when they have to wear the hijab to go to school, to get education, all of that. You might have heard about it. And I'm going to tell you a story of Gina Amini. That's her. That's her picture. 64 days ago, she got arrested by the morality police in Tehran. She was brutally attacked by them when she was in their custody. Short after she fell down, they took her to the hospital. She went into a coma and she died. Her death was just, I, I can't even put it into word how much it affected all of us. I, as a woman, Walking in the streets of Tehran, I can get arrested by morality police at every second. And it doesn't matter what I'm wearing. It doesn't matter if I have the hijab on or not. Because there are rules for how they arrest you, what dress they deem immoral or what they deem too slutty changes all the time. And that inconsistency gives them power. That inconsistency makes it confusing for all of you to understand what's happening to women in Iran. And they gain power in this inconsistency. Please understand that. Please educate yourself about it. Please come and talk to me about it. I'm here to explain all of this to you. Our fight against compulsory hijab is not Islamophobia. It's just for the freedom of clothing, freedom of choice, and the freedom and the right to be safe in the streets of our own country.
Thank you. When Gina died on her funeral, her mother wrote this on her headstone. Gina, dear, you didn't die. Your, your name will become a rallying cry. And it has become a rally cry. We are shouting her name and the name of all of the other brave women and girls who went to the streets after her, who, who lost their lives, who left us without their enchanting smiles and their beautiful laughter. We're shouting it every day in the streets here. We're shouting it in social media. We're doing everything that we can to raise awareness, to call for help. So I'm asking you to join me in this moment. Let's shout Gina's name. Her name was Gina Amini. That is her Kurdish name. Her Farsi name was Mahsa Amini. Today, I'm asking you let's respect her, her Kurdish heritage and shout her Kurdish name. It's Gina Amini. Say her name. Gina Say her name. Gina Say her name. The revolution that you see today, our resistance, is not anything new. They weren't the first ones who died, and they will not be the last ones who will be killed by this brutal regime. As long as the Islamic Republic is breeding, there will be more and more people dying in their hands. In these only 64 days, they have arrested more than 1,500 people. That we know of. Shame. Our parliament has asked for their immediate execution. And I understand that, yes, there's a difference between parliament and judicial system. But in Iran, in a dictatorship, they're one and the same. Don't let the media to trick you, to distract you, to tell you, no, 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 this is not, they haven't been sentenced yet. That doesn't mean anything in Iran. They have executed people in groups in the thousands before, and they will continue doing it. They have no mercy. There is a great history of resistance by the women of my country. Only two weeks after the 1979 revolution, the women of Iran took to the streets to say no to compulsory hijab, the rule that has killed all of these people now and many more of them. They took to the streets that day to say no to the plainclothes officer who were, to say no to the plainclothes officers who were harassing them. At the time, those plainclothes officers, they had a chance. They were saying, either wear the hijab or we're going to hit you in the head. That, is, that was their chant for hitting women in the streets. On 8th of March 1979, those brave women shouted, neither hijab, neither getting attacked. And right now, we in the streets of Tehran, in the streets of Melbourne, in the streets of all of the cities around the world are shouting, neither hijab, neither getting attacked, death to this dictatorship. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So that was a speech recorded at Slutwalk Melbourne. Uh, that was Nazanin speaking about women's experiences in Iran. We're going to listen to another clip from Slutwalk now. This is Kira, um, who shares her experience of sexual assault, another language warning and content warning on this one as well. Um, this is actually my first time speaking about this in a place that isn't my therapist's office. So, uh, yeah. 
And for context, I am 29, um, about to turn 30 in January, and the place I worked was a factory, so I wore high-vis and cargo pants and work boots and all that shit. <laughs> Not that that matters, but yeah, sorry. Brain, ADHD. Um, <laughs> a few days before my 21st birthday, I was sexually assaulted by my boss. Actually, it had been going on for a few weeks, but I didn't know what that what I was experiencing was sexual assault. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the incident that happened before my 21st, a lot of my male co-workers <laughs> labelled as Kira's freak out. The incident has become a weird marker on the timeline that is my life. There is pre-Kira's freak out. I was planning my birthday party, my 21st. My friends and family in one place to celebrate all of the things of, that I was proud of myself for achieving up into my life, up into that point. I was excited, happy, confident, loud. I was proud and ready to take on the world. Post freak out. I stopped seeing my friends. I shut everyone out and everything out. I started having regular panic attacks. I became quiet and withdrawn. That man had stolen my voice. I stopped celebrating any of my life's wins. No more birthdays. No more expressions of joy. I became someone different. My loved ones noticed a switch but were unsure of what to do. I developed an eating disorder. A subconscious attempt to disappear. I didn't want to be seen. I wore exclusively black oversized clothes, covered everything. It took me eight years for me to finally face the fact that what happened to me was sexual assault. What I'd experienced from that human personification of a stale potato chip. <laughs> was sexual assault. And had caused the behavioural changes in me. Were because of that fucking skid mark. With a lot of love and support, I was able to reclaim myself, my body, and my voice. It wasn't my fault. It didn't happen because I wasn't smart enough to understand what was going on sooner. It was... It was 100% on him. He was in the wrong, and he can eat my shit. Next year, I will be turning 30, and it'll be the first time in a long time that I will be celebrating the achievements on the anniversary, on the exit of my mother's womb. I'm throwing the memory of that man in that box and setting it on fucking fire.
also, uh, fuck that guy. Um, I hope he steps on a fucking Lego. That was an incredibly powerful speech by Kira from Slatwalk in Melbourne this year. And just before that, we heard another incredibly powerful speech from Nazneen talking about um, the struggles of Iranian women, also from Slatwalk in Melbourne this year. So that brings us to the end of our show. We've had a lot on this morning. We started off uh, hearing from uh, revisiting an old interview that we did in September with Sahar Golizadeh about the protests in Iran. Um, we then heard fr- we then spoke with Laura Riccardi from Wise about the impacts of um, the data breaches, particularly on women and other marginalized groups. We had a chat with Alira, one of the dancers from the Jara Dance Group, about her performance at the First and Forever Festival over the weekend. We revisited an interview with Alicia Savas about the framework to reduce criminalisation of young people in residential care. And just then we ended with um, some speeches from Slut Walk. Um, as always, keep it locked to 3CR and we will be back again here next Tuesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.